You have been an early investor, 200 million plus dollars, 95% is in Bitcoin. Bitcoin had crashed from 20,000 to 7,000. I think this thing's gonna hit three before it goes back to 10. At that point, I took about 50% of my net worth, put it into Bitcoin. Legacy system versus this new system. All of the assets that you could invest in, Bitcoin is going to outperform. I've got such deep conviction here. I've literally been studying this for years. Sitting here now today, I look like a genius, but frankly, it was scary. And you predicted 2026, Bitcoin's gonna get to a million because an event that's gonna take place in 2024. I personally believe that one day Bitcoin will be a hundred trillion dollar asset. To a lot of people saying Bitcoin's the safest place to put your money, how can you say Bitcoin's the safest place? It has the best cyber defense. You cannot hack Bitcoin. I can actually go look on chain and I can see every single wallet. Who's selling? Who's buying? Buffett is talking about silver. He's sitting on $200 billion of cash. But Buffett is not botting. When you look at a Warren Buffett, he hasn't outperformed the S&P for the last decade. If you had taken his approach, you've underperformed. People have spoken. This is superior technology. It's a better system. They want it and they're going to use it. So just last week on Twitter, I posed the question. I said, look, I would like to have a symposium of crypto experts from opposing sides, meaning if in politics we have the Democrats and Republicans, give me both sides of crypto. Some are Ethereum, some are Bitcoin, some are whatever. I want to do a symposium and I, you know, bring them here to Valuetainment, Florida. Let's have a debate and let's have a good conversation. Everybody can watch it live. The number one requested name was my guest today, Anthony Pump. Pompliano, who's a former veteran who was in Iraq, he served and he came out all of a sudden, he decided to get into the financial industry, spent thousands of hours studying the concepts of finance. And now when the topic of Bitcoin comes up, people contact this guy. Anthony, with that being said, thank you so much for being a guest on Value Team. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So, so, so walk me through how you go from being a vet in the U.S. Army to all of a sudden getting into crypto? How did that take place? Yeah, I mean, the short story is uh, when I got out of the military, uh, came back from Iraq, I went back to school and finished. Uh, it was uh, really important uh, from my father's perspective. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. Uh, and so that was kind of a, a big thing in his mind. And, uh, you know, in hindsight, it was a great decision. Uh, then I started a couple of businesses. And frankly, I knew nothing about starting businesses, made every mistake. I could write a book about everything not to do, uh, but ended up being uh, all right. And uh, eventually went and worked at Facebook, ran some product and growth teams there. Uh, and then uh, started investing in early stage technology once I left uh, Facebook. And the key piece to investing is just somebody told me early on, follow the talent, right? If smart people are all going to work on something, go start paying attention, go start learning about it. And uh, it just became very clear that there was a ton of intellectual capital flowing towards uh, cryptocurrency and, and the entire industry. And so I got my start actually building mining facilities, uh, actually using the computational power to, uh, to mine Bitcoin or Ether, uh, and then kind of fed on the rabbit hole. And now I'm sitting here talking to you. Now, now, let me ask you, the first time you invested into crypto or Bitcoin, what year was the first time you put a dollar? What year was it? So the, the, literally the very first cryptocurrency I ever got uh, was actually Ether. And uh, I didn't convert dollars. I had bought some mining machines and, uh, and mined them. I think it was just in like uh, end of 2016, which at the time I was like frantic uh, because I thought I was so late. I'd missed the whole thing. And, uh, you know, talk to people from 2012 and they said, well, when I got in, I thought I'd missed the whole thing. And you, know, you talk to the people today and they say they think they missed the whole thing. And so uh, 2016 was the first time, but, uh, but it's pretty, uh, pretty cool to see how far the industry's grown since then. So, you know, I spoke to Metacoban. I think you had him on a couple of days ago as well. He also got in like 2014, 2015, 2016. It's not like he's been around. He, 
he got into it also recently and then boom you know some call him a crypto billionaire he's the guy that bought people's every days i think for 69.3 million but going back to facebook what what happened with the facebook snap thing i've read something on some challenges happened with facebook snap you called them out you know hey your numbers are what happened there what was that issue about yeah look you know it, it's uh uh, business is business, right? And so uh, when I was at Facebook, we, we built out a number of really, really great products. Uh, I was, first was working on the growth team for Facebook pages. Uh, and we were basically helping small, medium-sized businesses use the platform. Uh, and then before I left, I had the great opportunity to, uh, to help on some products that uh, many people use today. So uh, one is the uh, Amber Alert product, where basically when a kidnapped child, uh, um, you know, the alert goes out, basically in your newsfeed, you'll get a notification saying, yep. hey, you know, be on the look out call number uh, and then voter registration um, and voter registration was um, uh, really interesting because uh, Facebook doesn't care which side you vote right with that product they just want more people registered to vote uh, and so when we launched it if I remember correctly I think it was in the UK uh, it was responsible for like a double digit percentage of voter registration uh, and so it's just cool to see kind of these platforms and just how much reach they have and, and their ability to uh, really drive uh, folks to uh, to kind of you know, do things that are good for society. Got it. And then, uh, so, so Amber Alert and voter registration while you were at Facebook, when you were at Facebook, did you work directly with Mark or no? Were you, were you working with them? I'm curious. Yeah. So um, for a very short period of time, about, uh, I don't know, six weeks, eight weeks, uh, there was a team put together uh, that really tried to help uh, both Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg uh, just better understand the platform, what was happening on their pages. You, you got to remember that uh, in the dominant platforms before around social, uh, how does the founder of the platform interact with people on the platform? So Tom from MySpace, everyone remembers, he friended everybody, right? So everyone was Tom's friend. Uh, and it kind of became this like cultural meme almost, Right. A meme. That's right. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so uh, Facebook didn't do that. Um, but really, how do you, as the founder of the platform, how do you talk to people? And, and so there was this team put together that basically tried to understand that. Um, it was part of a larger effort just around measuring sentiment on Facebook and things like that. And so uh, that was really my only experience working with uh, with Mark or Cheryl. Um, and frankly, I, I was blown away. I had the opportunity as a young kid to uh, to sit in some meetings with them and and to watch, uh, you know, a multi-billionaire who's built this amazing business that you know was one of the most valuable technology companies in the world, literally in a meeting go from talking about the individual um, kind of strategy of a team or a product all the way down to in the middle of a presentation, start talking about the pixels and the design and then go back to kind of the macro level um, you know, strategy stuff. Wow. It's just, it, it's absolutely incredible to watch uh, in real time. What was Cheryl's strength? If that was his, he can go technical and he can go more you know, general. What was Cheryl's strength? I think she's just a great operator, right? She, she really, really understands how to operate a business. She understood a lot of the revenue, right? All the things that I think people from the external say like, oh, this is what she's there to do. Uh, she's done a fantastic job with, and it's very obvious why when you uh, get to sit and talk and, and listen to her talk. Um, but the other piece of this too, I think is somebody once told me, they were like, look, uh, both of them have the advantage of they've got more context than most of the people in the meeting. Right. Zuck's the longest standing employee at Facebook. And so he was literally there when a lot of these design or product decisions were made. The people who else were in the room, most of them have moved on. Right. And so when you're talking to Mark, you can have all the ideas in the world. He literally just has an information advantage. Right. He's been around. He knows why certain decisions were made. And so naturally, what you want to do is you want to just kind of learn from those people. And so uh, I was like 25 and 26 years old uh, when I got the opportunity to uh, work alongside not only them, but also a number of the, the people who are still at Facebook and leadership positions. And I just try to soak it up. You know, it's just like surround yourself with people who uh, who are smarter than you, more experienced and frankly, just shut up and listen. And that was kind of my strategy.
Right, looks like it worked. So the question for you would be, when is the first time you made money? Where you would say, Pat, I made money. My first big success of money was I exited this place. I had this many shares. Company went public. I bought this. I flipped this. What was your first big victory you had with money? Yeah, so uh, the first time I made real money, and I say real money because uh, a lot of the uh, the companies that I built and sold and all this stuff, uh, there was earnouts, there was kind of paper gains, there was all this stuff, but but not actual real money, right? And and you kind of learn those lessons again. Like I said, I made every mistake in the book. Uh, but when I left uh, Facebook, uh, I had some uh, stock, and uh, the stock had appreciated, uh, I think like three hundred percent or something uh, while I was there. And so uh, in twenty sixteen, I think it was, uh, is when I actually sold the shares, uh, and I basically took fifty percent of it. I put in the bank and said, okay, you know, I, I'm going to have this money and I'll be able to live off of it for a while. And the other 50% I took and I went and I uh, basically put it into cryptocurrency mining. And so I've always been somebody who believes in, uh, in kind of concentration uh, and kind of not taking a ton of shots. But when you take a shot, you know, and you, you make sure you know what you're talking about, you've got an advantage, uh, go in and try to exploit it. And so that's what I uh, kind of really made money for the first time. Dramatically against what traditional you know, uh, rhetoric we keep hearing about is don't have your money concentrated in one specific area. What if you lose the whole thing? You, which I'm a proponent of, you want the complete opposite side with uh, well, putting all your money in one place. What do you think about that? Well, I think it depends on who you ask, right? If you talk to, let's say, a, a, a kind of a personal finance uh, guru, or you talk to a financial advisor, uh, really what they're optimizing for is they're trying to optimize for protecting the capital. Right? They're not necessarily optimizing for growing capital. It's a lot of protecting capital. It's a lot of career risk involved there. It's not their money in many cases. Uh, and so they're always talking about diversification. Diversification is a fantastic way to protect capital. But if you're trying to compound capital and grow capital, diversification actually can be uh, detrimental, can be an obstacle to that goal. And so when you look at you know, a Warren Buffett, right? he's famous for saying, look, diversification is for people who don't know what they're doing. Now, maybe that's a little bit of a hyperbole type statement, and he's, he was trying to make a point, but I do think that when you look at the people who have built real wealth in the world, almost all of them did it through concentration. They had a concentration either in investments or in the ownership of businesses that they were running. And so naturally, there's uh, kind of a, not a black and white world, right? If you want to build wealth, you got to have concentration. But once you get wealth, you better be smart enough to protect it, and that's where you can start to get some diversification uh, to, to really make sure that you don't lose it. Uh, very true. And the flip side, the opposite, you know, opposing side will say, well, you don't know a lot of people that also went concentrate and lost everything they had. Yes. But if you're trying to get for, get all the marbles, you have to take some risk, which is what uh, we subscribe to. So you have been an early investor, 20, 200 million plus dollars in early stage companies and including many different unicorns. From what I've been seeing lately is it used to say 50% of your net worth is in Bitcoin. I saw recently said 95% is in Bitcoin. Are you really 95% in Bitcoin today? Yeah, so uh, in 2018, um, I've I made a ton of mistakes between 2016 and 2018 when it came to cryptocurrencies. And I always say that uh, people just have to go through the learning. Like You, you have to go and, and actually experience this stuff. And so everything from I tried to trade, realized I wasn't a good trader, to uh, I started trying to mine different things, realized that wasn't a smart idea. Uh, and eventually in uh, 2018, started to really wrap my head around like, what is this thing? And so uh, in August of 2018, I wrote a thing publicly and I said, hey, we were sitting around $7,000. Bitcoin had crashed from 20,000 to 7,000. Uh, and I said, look, you know, based on everything that I've done, everything I've talked to, every, everything I've learned, I think this thing's going to hit three before it goes back to 10. 
And so I just sat there, I waited, it eventually did that. And uh, at that point, I took about 50% of my net worth, put it into Bitcoin. Uh, and I felt like 50% was the right number, mainly because it was 50-50, the legacy system versus this new system. I want to be equally split. I'm a young guy. I've got good, you know, kind of high earning potential. Uh, so I can take the concentrated risk. If I lose 50%, it's not going to be the end of the world. It'll suck. I won't be happy, but, you know, I can recover from that. Well, fast forward to 2020 when all of the kind of craziness started to happen with the uh, economic uh, uncertainty and then obviously the government intervention and, and kind of manipulation of markets. And it just became very evident, like, look, if all of the assets that you could invest in, Bitcoin is going to outperform. It is going to serve as kind of that fastest horse in the inflation hedge bucket, as uh, Paul Tudor Jones called it later in the year. And so I basically just said, I'm going all in, right? I, I've got such deep conviction here. I've literally been studying this for years. I've got a belief that this is going to uh, be the safest place for me to put my wealth. And so uh, going from what had been 50% to basically all of my liquid cash, other than what I thought was uh, you know, enough to live on, uh, I just went all in, bought Bitcoin. And uh, you know, sitting here now today, I look like a genius, but frankly, it was scary, right? You, uh, you, you kind of are buy, making these buy purchases and you're just like, I hope this works out because if not, uh, <laughs> I'm the biggest idiot in the room. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I mean, it worked in your favor in a big way, which is great. And today we're, I think today right now, as of right now, Bitcoin's at 61,414. I think it's at 61,414. And uh, to see you go from 3K to 61,214, that's 20X, and that was 50%, and you go 95%. So the question, if 95% is Bitcoin, what's 5%? Yeah. So uh, the rest is, and, and I should be clear that uh, I think of that as kind of like my liquid net worth, right? Uh, I've got a ton of exposure to uh, illiquid companies. I basically, when I think of kind of my portfolio, I just write all of that to zero, right? I just say, hey, look, uh, yeah. some of it'll become true. Some of it'll go to zero. Like we'll see kind of what happens there. Um, I, I'm very fortunate to have invested in a number of these great companies uh, that, um, you know, from an illiquid standpoint, I don't, I don't know what the valuation of all that is. I just you know, kind of zero it out. The only other things that I have from an asset perspective are uh, I own a little bit of real estate and then it's cash. So I literally own no public stocks. Uh, I've got GBTC in a retirement account. That's the only public equity that I hold. Uh, and other than that, then it's pretty much just Bitcoin. And so that's, you know, the belief is that it's the savings technology that has the best ability to uh, protect your purchasing power and outperform those financial assets. Uh, and so I choose just to have concentration there. You said safest place. Now you have to realize to a lot of people saying Bitcoin's the safest place to put your money. I mean, you're driving many people insane to say the safest place, right? You know, you save an account, you got the treasury bills, you got gold, you got a investment company, Active America with American funds since 1934, it's giving you 12.7%. You got all these other places. How can you say Bitcoin's the safest place? So. I'm going to give you two separate frameworks that I used to think through this, right? Let's talk structurally first. So if I said to most people, what's the safest uh, place to park your wealth? They'll say the U.S. dollar. And that's true both in the Western world and also developing nations around the world. There's this idea of um, stability, safety, discipline, and monetary policy, like all the things that we assign to uh, the U.S. dollar. And frankly, things that actually drive value in that US dollar, right? Kind of it being the global reserve currency, et cetera. Uh, but when you actually unpack that structure, what you find is the US dollar's monetary policy, the decisions that drive the value of it uh, are not very transparent. There's a group of people that go in a room privately, they make decisions. We don't really have a lot of understanding of exactly what data they're looking at, why they're making decisions. When they make the announcements, we hang on every single word. Do they use dovish or not, right? What Literally, what color tie are they wearing yeah. or not, right? I mean, it's just pretty, pretty archaic type um, idea. And then on top of that, we get no say either. 
So when they decided to do two emergency rate cuts to the interest rate in uh, uh, Q1 and Q2 of 2020, all of a sudden, I had no say, you had no say, right? Then when you look at all the quantitative easing that's occurred, I had no say, you had no say. And so in many cases, especially with the, uh, the central banking, these are not elected officials. These are appointed officials. And so again, it's not something where it's the uh, kind of desires of the people. Now, yes, they are appointed by people that were elected. So there's kind of an indirectness to it. But, but I think that when you look at it, it's just not a transparent system. It's a very human-driven system. When you look at Bitcoin, it's the exact opposite. Right? And the reason why that's important is because we've moved from this narrative-based world, which is this old legacy world uh, around central banking and all financial assets, to now we're in a world where I don't believe you, prove it. And so if I ask people right now, how many dollars are in circulation? There's nobody who can tell you the exact figure. right? If I say to you, how many dollars were printed today or taken out of circulation? Nobody can tell you. And so that is a narrative-driven world. We're told that there's something there, and we kind of directionally understand, but we don't actually have the provability. When I look at something like Bitcoin, it's a fully transparent system. So not only can I tell you how many total Bitcoin there will be in the world, I can tell you exactly how many are in circulation today. I can tell you exactly how many came into circulation on this day, exactly 900 Bitcoin were created today, put into circulation. I can go back and I can actually show you every single transaction that has occurred since January 3rd, 2009. And then on top of that, and a really important part is the monetary policy is programmatic, meaning that I can actually tell you the interest rate or inflation decisions that are gonna be made well into the future, literally decades into the future, because it's written in transparent code. And if that code ever changes, we'll know well in advance. And so now all of a sudden I say, okay, I can choose to put my money into a fiat currency where I don't know the people who are making the decision. I don't know what decisions they're going to make. And also they can do absolutely insane things like manipulate interest rates on emergency schedules. And they printed 40% of all US dollars in circulation in the last 12 months. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. That is Bitcoin, crazy. Bitcoin just does what Bitcoin does, right? We know every day for four years, it's going to produce 900 Bitcoin per day, put it into circulation. And then the beauty of it is you can look on chain at all of the data. So if you even go to something like stocks, for example, again, from a structural standpoint, Coinbase recently went public. And when Coinbase went public, I think everyone thought the stock was just going to take off and you know go to the moon. Well, it didn't really do that. And so my initial inclination was, well, maybe this is like insiders because there's a direct listing. Uh, there's no lockup period. Maybe there's just insiders kind of you know capturing their profits and, and selling sure. their sell pressure. Yep. And eventually it, it'll recover. But I can't go validate that. In Bitcoin and crypto, I can actually go look on chain. I can see every single wallet, who's selling, who's buying, who's been holding, how long have they been holding, when did they get that Bitcoin, all that kind of stuff. And so it's just a more transparent system. And so when I think of safety from a structural standpoint, I want to understand as much of the system as I possibly can. Then you've got to look at, okay, forget my opinion, forget anybody else's opinion. What's just the financial performance? And in a year you know, plus, call it 12 to 15 months, mm -hmm. where literally there couldn't have been more economic chaos, uncertainty. Bitcoin is by far the best performing asset, right? If you look at the stock markets up about 50%, gold is basically flat, uh, and Bitcoin's up 800% in the last 12 months. It outperformed everything. And the reason why it did that is because it's a supply and demand game, fixed supply. There was an awakening in the institutional world that this asset is going to serve as a store of value for a long period of time. And you had a bunch of institutions showing up trying to buy billions and billions of dollars of Bitcoin, but the Bitcoiners aren't selling. 60% of Bitcoin hasn't moved in the last 12 months. And so 60% of Bitcoin- 60% hasn't moved in the last 12 months. This is the most important thing for people to understand from a market structure wow. standpoint. So 18.6 million Bitcoin are in circulation. But 60% of that has not moved in the last 12 months. 
And on top of that, the Bitcoin that is available on the exchanges yeah. continues to drop. So actually what you're having is more, as more people are buying it, they're pulling it into cold storage sure. and they're long-term holders. Buying so it. really the kind of addressable circulating supply is only 40% of that 18.6 million Bitcoin. So now when these institutions show up with billions of dollars, there's, there's not a lot of Bitcoin to buy, right? And that's where you get this rapid price appreciation that we've seen over the last 12 months. So, so let me ask you this. There's only a certain supply of Bitcoin I can give, right? You got 18.6 million, 60% no one's selling, 40% people are selling. So 40% of 18.6 million, you do the math, say eight and a half, say 9 million, whatever the numbers. Okay. Uh, seven and a half million, whatever the numbers, right? Okay. So how come if we only have a limited amount of gold, how come gold didn't go up the same level that Bitcoin did during the same exact period, which means you can't go print gold, you can't go print uh, Bitcoin. Why didn't gold go up the way crypto did, the Bitcoin did? So I think, I think there's two components to this. One is uh, the statement, there's a limited supply of gold. We don't know that. Again, a narrative driven world. We're told that gold is scarce, but if I ask somebody, well, how much gold is there right now in the circulating supply? Again, we don't know for a fact, right? There, there's good guesses, right? So I don't, I don't want to kind of uh, take the uh, the, the uh, extreme view of like nobody knows. We have a, we have an educated guess, but we don't know with 100% certainty compared to like let's say a Bitcoin. The second thing is yeah. that gold, from a a social consensus standpoint, ask anyone under the age of 35 if they're buying gold or Bitcoin. Right. So what you have is you have a capital shift from older kind of the boomer generation down to the younger generation, but the younger generation doesn't want to hold gold. And so if you go and you look at the same time that Bitcoin went up uh, over the last, like, let's say, six, seven months, 500 percent gold is down pretty materially. Right. It's down like 15, 20 percent. And so it's How, not so that, that doesn't make any sense mathematically. Well, because people are selling it. Right, people are dropping gold and they're buying Bitcoin. Now, again, it is unclear how much of the people that are dropping gold and kind of selling gold are actually going directly to buy Bitcoin. But what you can see is you can see an inverse relationship. As gold has gone down, Bitcoin has gone up. Mm -hmm. And so what I think becomes really, really interesting is, again, a store of value ends up being more of a social consensus than a technology consensus, right? And what I mean by that is, Bitcoin is by far 10, 100, maybe 1,000x improvement on gold from a technology standpoint. It's more portable, it's more divisible, right? It's more transparent, verifiable, all that kind of stuff. So from a pure just technology standpoint, it is drastically more superior. But actually what's more important is the social consensus. If everyone was yelling and screaming and saying, go buy gold, right? During this uh, kind of economic chaos, mm -hmm. gold would have went up. Mm -hmm. Right. But instead, what, what is everyone been talking about? What is CNBC talking about all day long? Right. What is the uh, institutional investment uh, sure. investors all talking about? Bitcoin. And so naturally, that's where capital flows. When capital flows to a fixed supply asset, price has to go up to accommodate everybody. And so I think that you're just seeing a generational shift here where analog assets are going to get replaced by digital assets. And what history has shown us is that digital assets are always bigger than their analog predecessors because the Internet is just so much bigger than we ever give it credit for. So, so let me ask you, so when you look at real estate, you can say, well, if the interest rate goes up, you know, price of real estate goes down. If real estate, you know, rates go down, price of real estate goes up. Like kind of right now, the rates are kind of like coming up a little bit and you notice when the price is dropping, people are like, hey, you know, I thought I was going to pay, you know, seller for the price I want to know. Rates went up a little bit, right? So you can kind of directly correlate rates to real estate and many other things you can link to real estate, right? When you think about stock market, there's a bubble, you know, we have a bull market, bear market. 
war, you know, certain things that happens, okay, I'm going to take my money out, a crisis that takes place. What is the direct correlation of an event taking place to cause Bitcoin to go down or up? I think we know what up is, but what is down is what I'm curious about. Yeah, so uh, from a macro view, if you just take a relative comparison between Bitcoin and all of these other assets, there are times, just like in any asset or, or market, where there is higher degrees of correlation, right? So if you think of March of 2020, every asset sold off, everyone wants dollars. It's a liquidity crisis, and so naturally correlations go towards one. But when you look over a long period of time, over many years, Bitcoin's correlation to most of the major asset classes is about 0.15. So it's heavily non-correlated to other assets, stocks, bonds, gold, et cetera. Now, that doesn't mean that those short-term periods don't lead to correlation, right? So it's important to kind of long-term, short-term comparison. Now, when you look at things like event-driven price uh, kind of um, uh, events, what you have to look at is why do people value Bitcoin, right? It's actually usually economic hedge or chaos hedge, schmuck insurance, whatever you want to call it, or they look at it as some sort of savings technology, or they look at it as speculation. So to your point, when interest rates go down and, and kind of free money floods the system, people go speculate. And they're speculating everything from GameStop to Bitcoin to name your you know, financial asset for that young people are excited about. That is some portion of the population. But again, 60% haven't sold or moved their Bitcoin in the last 12 months. So those guys aren't speculating. Those are long-term believers, holders, whatever you want to call them. So why are they holding this? There's a very big portion of it that just simply look at it as a savings technology. If you look at most financial assets and you denominate them in gold and not dollars, they're actually down since 1971. So the U.S. Mm. stock market is down in gold versus uh, being up in uh, dollars. Why is that? Some will argue, right, that it's simply just the dollar being devalued. And so naturally you get kind of uh, price appreciation of an asset that's denominated in dollars because the dollar is being devalued. Well, against Bitcoin, Bitcoin actually is increasing your purchasing power. It's not decreasing like the dollar is. And so those people just want to save in an asset that will continue to appreciate that uh, purchasing power rather than have it decrease in dollars. And then the third bucket, which is actually a really, really interesting bucket, is this schmuck insurance, right? And so I think that there's this very interesting kind of conversation around in the United States, if you look at the Federal Reserve's comments or you look at other people, there's this belief that like we're above it, right? It's American exceptionalism, that, we, that there's no way that the dollar could ever fail. We'll never lose control from a monetary sure. policy standpoint. Again, I'm a believer of like, it's a very, very low probability but it's a non-zero probability. And so when you see things like, you know, last year we heard a lot from the Federal Reserve of we're not worried about inflation. Inflation isn't going to happen. It's a deflationary environment. It can soak it up, all that kind of stuff. Well, over the last 60 days, actually, we started to see some inflation. And now what we're being told is like, oh, it's temporary. And maybe it is, maybe it's not, I don't know. But like, that's a very different story than we were just being told six, nine months ago. And so when you look around the world, what you realize is there's a lot of countries that went from we're not worried about inflation to inflation is temporary to all of a sudden we can't control the inflation, right? And so like, it doesn't take a lot to spiral out of control. If anyone in the world is well equipped to deal with it, the United States is probably that country, right? In terms of we've been really uh, disciplined with monetary policy for a long time. We've got a lot of tools. We got the global reserve currency, all that. But I do think that there is a, a mispricing of risk in the market where if most people assign 0% value to there being any sort of structural uh, issue and Bitcoiners assign 1% probability of there being a structural issue that ends up being catastrophic, Bitcoiners are probably closer to the truth than the people who assign zero value, right? Just 
by the nature of it being a non-zero probability. And so I think that that mispricing leads a lot of Bitcoiners to simply look at it as that insurance. Um, and so when you start to extrapolate this out to not this Bitcoin community, but the kind of global macro environment, you now have billionaires doing this. You now have Fortune 500 companies doing this. You now have pension funds doing it. You have sovereign wealth funds doing it. There's a lot of people who are starting to say, wait a second, I got zero exposure and zero exposure is the wrong number. Maybe I should have 25 basis points or maybe I should have 25%, but I got to have some exposure. I can't be on zero anymore. So, so uh, 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 you know, when, it, when something like this is taking place, take a guy like Warren Buffett. When you think about investments, you think about a Warren Buffett, right? You take a Ray Dalio. You got to put him in there, right? Ray Dalio, what he's done himself. You know, Buffett is talking about silver. Hey, he put his money in silver. And right now, I think he's sitting on $200 billion of cash is what he's sitting on. Imagine if that $200 billion would have been in portion, you know, crypto, 800%. You're talking about $1.6 trillion is what uh, 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 Berkshire Hathaway would have had. It would have been the largest company in the world, even bigger than Amazon and the other. It's if they just would have put their cash in there. But Buffett is not bought in. Ray Dalio is critical about it because he thinks regulation is going to get to it. Do you think? What is happening is the old timers who have had their set of philosophies that's worked for them for decades, they are so set in stone with the way they see what's worked for them that they're not willing to break from it to say, hey, maybe we have to take a look at what's going on with crypto. Do you think the next phase, a lot of these old school, heavy duty people that we've respected for decades are going to be exposed, not even exposed like they don't know what they're doing. Obviously, they know what they're doing. But maybe their method of investment is outdated for 2021. And these are people yep. you and I admire. These are people that we have a lot of respect for. What do you think about that? Yeah, so I think it's important to call it right out of the gate. Anyone who says that Warren Buffett is an idiot or Ray Dalio or, you know, name your kind of favorite uh, kind of historic yeah. uh, return investor, uh, you know, they're just being intellectually dishonest. So they had an epic run. They're absolutely some of the best investors in the world. Now, with that said, they made most of their money uh, or the decisions they made that made most of their money in a different world. Right, it wasn't a digital technology-driven world for the most part as we know it today. And so, when you look at you know a Warren Buffett, for example, uh, he hasn't outperformed the S and P for the last decade. Now, again, that doesn't take anything away from his track record. He's one of the best investors in the world. But the world has either changed or he's the rational person in an irrational world. So you can take your pick as to why the you know this has played out this way. But he hasn't beat the S and P in the last decade. And so, if you had taken his approach, you've underperformed. Now, there's plenty of people who say, well, look at uh, somebody on the extreme other end, Masayoshi son from SoftBank, right? Who I don't think anyone thinks that Masayoshi and Warren Buffett sit down and they're like, we're going to pick the same stocks. We're going to pick the same investment strategy, right? But sure. Masayoshi, everyone thought he was crazy. And now all of a sudden it looks like SoftBank's vision fund is going to do pretty dang well. And so I think when you start to really unpack some of this, you've got to look at, okay, what is the environment that we're in, this technology-enabled kind of digital world? What are the investments? And what I think that we're starting to unpack here is uh, there's a lot of hero worship that happens in the financial markets, right? It's because you did something 10 years ago or 20 years ago, of course, you're going to be smart here. Sometimes that is true, but I think that's a very dangerous precedent to kind of fall under. And so what I like to do is just simply look at and say, okay, what are you trying to accomplish? For a young guy like me, it's asymmetry, 
right? And so that asymmetry ends up being really important because you can risk less capital and there's a higher payoff, more risk, but higher payoff. And so if that's what you're looking for, it's actually the exact opposite thing of what Warren Buffett is trying to accomplish, right? Warren Buffett understands he's got $200 billion in cash. He's got this big machine. He wants to protect his wealth. He wants to continue to compound it. And if you can compound, you know, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars at eight, 10% a year, you're going to do just fine. Bitcoin has compounded at 200% compound annual growth rate for a decade. So simply just holding Bitcoin, right, would have drastically outperformed Warren Buffett. Now, that doesn't mean that either one of those people are right or wrong. It's just they're optimizing for something different. And so what I think will end up happening is the older generation, the, the folks who are kind of um, at the ends of their career, they're not going to come around, right? They just, they, a lot of them will even say, that I'm not a technology investor. I don't understand this stuff. It violates a lot of my worldview. I just, I'm a, I'm a value person or, or whatever their strategy is. What I do think is likely to happen, though, is a lot of the younger people in their organizations, as they rise up in kind of power, influence, and positions, they'll start to diversify into a lot of this. So there will be a day where Berkshire Hathaway buys Bitcoin. It's probably not going to be Warren Buffett pulling the trigger on that decision. It'll probably be somebody else. Listen, foresight, you know, great, uh, great uh, prediction of what could potentially happen. But it's, it's got to be pretty tough to be them because even the other day, for example, when I'm asking about the biggest enemy that crypto may have, Bitcoin may have, right? Um, Janet Yellen, not a fan. You know that. She's not a fan. Powell, not a fan. Uh, Ray Dalio said there's probably going to be regulation coming to it. I mean, I can give you a list of names, plethora of names politically that are not for what can happen to crypto and Bitcoin and all of that. What is the worst thing? You know, because some people say, if you really understand Bitcoin, you will know they can never regulate Bitcoin, right? You've, hear, you've heard that saying before millions of times by uh, pro-crypto folks. But what is the worst thing a Yellen, a Powell, a Biden, the political people can do to the crypto world? Well, I think they've already probably done it and hasn't stopped it, right? And so I'll give you two scenarios. Uh, one is an international scenario where we have some data points, and then one's what's happening in the United States. Uh, so internationally, we've seen people ban it, right? We've seen Pakistan, we've seen Nigeria, uh, China, we've seen multiple countries go and ban it. And when they ban it, guess what happens? Adoption goes through the roof. Right. So actually by banning it, you're almost running a marketing campaign. And especially in those countries where people already have a distrust for their government, the second the government says, don't do something, they ask, why does the government not want me to do that? Mm -hmm. Right. And they actually go and they adopt it. Yep. Um, and, and so I think that banning it is a, a great example of what not to do for a government. If a government wants to, quote unquote, attack Bitcoin or be adversarial to Bitcoin, the better thing for them to do would probably be overly regulatory, right? Or like have an overreach in the regulatory realm. And so if you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin is the most regulated currency in the United States. And when, here's what I mean by that. If you and I go to dinner and you buy dinner with dollars, you simply pay sales tax on that transaction. If I buy uh, dinner with Bitcoin, I not only have to pay the sales tax, I then have to pay capital gains short or long term on the purchase because it's treated as property for me now cashing out to, uh, to pay for this thing. And so from a regulatory standpoint, there's actually a financial incentive for me not to use Bitcoin in the United States, right? That, that is a obstacle that even though it's in place, this year, Bitcoin's on-chain transaction volume, meaning people actually using it, not for trading on exchanges, but actually using it for whatever purpose, will be over $5 trillion of on-chain transaction volume. That's more transaction volume this year and last year than Venmo, Apple Pay, or PayPal. So people who say no one's using it, like, wait a second, this is I'm more popular than- say that, Jamie Dimon said Chase is $7 trillion. So wait a minute. 
Did you just say it's $5 trillion just for Bitcoin in the last so, 12 months? If you take uh, the current on-chain transaction volume, you just annualize it, right? It'll be over $7 trillion of transaction volume on the actual Bitcoin blockchain this year in uh, 2020. Seven or five, seven or five. Seven, seven. seven. Got it. Yes. And so when you start to unpack some of this, you really start to understand that, okay, even though there is this big obstacle around taxation, right? People are still using it. The second thing is everyone forgets you don't actually ever regulate an asset, right? It's not like you're going to put the dollar in jail or you're going to go and get the dollar bill and scream at it and say, give me your tax money. So we'll say the thing with Bitcoin, right? The asset itself isn't what gets regulated. It's the organizations and the people who use it, transact, support, and have related services to it. And so in the United States, a crypto company is subject to all of the same rules and regulations as any financial company. If you need to have a money transmitter license in the regular finance world, you need to have it in crypto. If you need a broker-dealer license, KYC, AML, all that stuff. But in certain areas, let's say in the state of New York, if you're a crypto company, you have to get an additional license that the other financial companies don't have to get. It's something called a bit license. So it's actually harder for you to conduct a crypto business in the state of New York than it is for you to conduct our traditional financial institution. And so in some crazy way, Bitcoin and the crypto ecosystem is more regulated than the traditional financial system. And that kind of blows people's minds because they're like, what do you mean? How is this possible? Whatever. Well, if you tax it more than other currencies and then you make the companies get additional licenses that other financial companies don't need to get, then what you're doing is you're actually putting up these obstacles. Even though all of that's occurred, you have in the liquid market a two plus trillion dollar market cap. Bitcoin's a trillion dollar of that. And then on top of that, you've got multiple multi-billion dollar companies within the United States that have been built in this industry. And so no matter what regulation you put in the way, even if in other countries you ban it, or in the United States, you simply try to over-regulate it, it doesn't matter. People have spoken. This is superior technology. It's a better system. They want it and they're going to use it. And just like they did to Uber and Airbnb, where they try to use regulation and kind of all of this political overreach, it doesn't matter. If people want it, they're going to get it. And that's the new paradigm in the technology world is the technology is superior from an adoption standpoint to any sort of regulation you can put in way. You can disincentivize it all you want. If it is better and it has product market fit, it will be adopted. Uh, Anthony, what, uh, what is easier for law enforcement to investigate and find? FBI, you know, FTC, pick them, you know, SEC, any one of them, pick any one of those guys. Would they prefer cryptocurrency being the, you know, modern day, day-to-day -day usage of, a, 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 you know, currency that we use over fiat or even gold? Is it easier uh, to trace the bad guy doing what he's doing with crypto? So naturally, uh, Bitcoin is a transparent ledger. Literally, every single transaction is put into a public ledger that you can go on the internet and you can search. Anyone in the world with an internet connection can search this thing. Uh, so I always joke that uh, a law enforcement officer uh, who was in, uh, in one of the, uh, the, the federal law enforcement uh, agencies once told me, if a criminal is committing a crime, we want their hands on a keyboard, right? It leaves a digital trail. And, and so it's always easier for them to track it. That's not just currency. That's just any crime in general. We want their hands on a keyboard. Uh, with that said, the choice currency of money launderers, drug dealers, criminals, terrorists, etc., around the world today is absolutely U.S. dollars. There's estimations that come out of the U.K. Uh, in some of their uh, kind of national uh, studies that over two trillion dollars is laundered annually. Annually, two trillion dollars is laundered in the fiat system with U.S. dollars. Well, that's the entire size of all cryptocurrencies combined. So you start looking at this and you say, okay, well, what about on a percentage basis? 
Well, there's estimations that anywhere between one to 3% of all US dollar uh, transactions are used for illicit purposes uh, globally. The latest estimation when it comes to cryptocurrency is 0.4%, 40 basis points. That's all is the illicit transactions. You just had a former CIA director come out and say, listen, this whole uh, kind of narrative that a lot of people in government and, and in the central bank and treasury are spinning around, it's used for illicit purposes. He's like, it's not true. The data does not support that. And the beauty is that we can actually prove it because it's all on chain. And so there's this very interesting conversation around, yes, law enforcement has a much better ability to uh, kind of track this stuff and analyze it. But it's also important to keep the privacy, the financial privacy, the human right to be able to use money without being tracked by your government at the same time. And so I think that's the conversation that's going to start coming up here over the next couple of years. You know, great answer there. Very helpful. Medical, when I asked him, I said, hey, how come you don't live in US? Why do you live in uh, Singapore, right? And if you go look at the economic index on the Heritage's uh, website, the highest one today is Singapore. I think they just passed New Zealand. They're number one right now, meaning the freest country in the world you can live in. You're living in US. I said, why aren't you living in US? He says, uh, I lived in Canada. I lived in UK. I lived in India and I live in now Singapore. He said, I wouldn't want to live in US because US has fingerprints. They want to know everything you have over here. I don't pay capital gains. I don't pay this. I don't pay that. The income taxes, 10 or 20%. And I don't have all these other taxes on top of it. And they don't want to know how much money I have. How optimistic are you on the future of uh, America? You talked about America earlier where you said Americans have a tendency of believing that's going to be the greatest country in the world. And, you know, currency, no one can go up against the currency. It's the best currency in the world. How optimistic are you with America as a product, not, not crypto, not Bitcoin? Yeah. So I believe that America and the American ideals are have created and still is the greatest country in the world, right? And the belief in capitalism, free markets, and democracy, uh, we are very spoiled here in this country uh, compared to where most people live uh, in the world. Uh, with that said, uh, I always look at it as just because you were able to ascend to this position of, uh, of privilege and power and, and kind of freedom does not mean that it is guaranteed in the future. And so in the United States, I think that what we are starting to get to a point of is we're the fat cat in the room, right? We're happy. We're, we're, this is America. We can do no wrong. We've got the greatest military in the world. We've got the global reserve currency. We are the kings of the world. Well, every dynasty and empire in history has fallen. And usually it is because they become the fat cat in the room. They stop pursuing innovation. They stop pursuing kind of independent thought and problem solving and critical thinking. And they simply start saying, we win because we are America, right? And I think it's a very dangerous place to be in. And so I think that the, the best place, frankly, that this is showing up is in something like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, where when you look at an open decentralized system, you can see the rhetoric that's being used in a lot of this. People are starting to say, oh, some, one of our adversaries may use this technology and that will be detrimental to the United States. Well, when you're the incumbent, you constantly look at regulation and you look at how can I rig the market to my advantage? How do I king make, right? When you're the startup, that's not what you think. You think, give me the tools and I'll compete in the free market. You, right. you enjoy the competition, right? You want to go fight the battle. And so I think that what we've got to do is we got to get back to that, right? The industrial revolution and a lot of what made America, America was about us saying, give us the technology and we're going to go compete in the free market and we're going to win. And so I think that what ends up happening is we've got a decision to make. We're, we are the greatest country in the world. Do we want to continue to do that or are we going to go into decline? And I think that what we have to do is we have to continue to pursue technological innovation and we have to in, uh, make sure that through incentives, whether that's tax, regulation or otherwise, that we want the smartest people in the world living here, working here, building here and employing people 
And if we do that, we got a shot. No guarantee, but we got a shot. But I think there's a couple of other countries that are starting to catch on to the game, right? Singapore uh, is one area. There's plenty of others that start saying, look, we're going to take the American playbook and we're going to use it against them. So let's go compete. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. And by the way, China right now, I don't know if you saw what came out story this week when they said China looks at U.S. as their equal. They no longer look at their superior. This was said this Monday. We talked about on the podcast. And you heard Peter Thiel, I think last week, I think it was last week when he talked about the fact that, hey, you know, China's using uh, Bitcoin as a way to manipulate the U.S. currency, the fiat currency. This is a national security. So what do you think about what Peter Thiel is saying? Because you, you, when you talk about the startup, hey, just 20 years ago, China was number eight. You know, China was number seven. And they did that uh, uh, Olympics in 08, I think it was, when we're like, what the hell was the way they would walk? How many times did these guys? It was the greatest opening show ever. Like, these guys are going to compete. They went from eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. In 2025, they're planning on being number one. What do you think Peter Thiel is saying, the fact that they're going to use Bitcoin to manipulate the U.S. currency to weaken it? Yeah, so I think that uh, the context of his comments are really important, right? So first is uh, he was very clear that he's pro-Bitcoin, he's pro-crypto, he considers himself a Bitcoin maximalist uh, and, uh, and believes that it will continue to accrue value as this like global store of value. The second thing is that right before he talked about Bitcoin, he actually said that uh, at one point, the euro was seen as a financial weapon by China against the United States. And it ended up not actually being able to uh, kind of weaken the dollar enough or or have the impact that they wanted it to have, right? So this is not a new concept or a new framework for people to kind of evaluate uh, China's global aspirations compared to the US. Uh, And so the idea with Bitcoin is that uh, if people start to adopt Bitcoin, then that will destabilize the global uh, reserve currency, right? And and Bitcoin will end up being uh, kind of a global reserve currency. Now, what I always say is Bitcoin is a open network. It's an open decentralized network, very similar to the internet. And so when the internet came along, the United States had a very big hand in creating that and adopting it and embracing it, using it to their advantage. But there are countries around the world that said, oh my God, other people are gonna use this. And so we're not gonna use it. We're gonna cut our citizens off from the internet. North Korea is a great example. It didn't turn out so hot for North Korea and their citizens. And so when you have an open decentralized network, naturally people around the world are going to use it. Open systems beat closed systems. And so when you think of it from that standpoint, the United States has a choice. We can be adversarial and we can be kind of closed system minded, right? And we can say, hey, we're not going to use this thing because another country may try to adopt it or use it and and, and use it to their benefit. Or we can simply say, you know what? There's a global game. We're going to go compete. We're going to embrace this. And we're going to make sure that if anyone benefits from Bitcoin in this open system, we benefit more than anybody else. And I think that's the winning strategy here. It's not to say, oh, let's ban our our, uh, citizens from using this. Let's try to look at this as a threat. It's to say, hey, there's a weapon up for grab. Let's go use it and we'll be the winners. And because every other country is going to do that as well. So why don't you just go make sure you benefit more than everybody else from? It's interesting you say that open systems beat closed systems. I mean, some would say, obviously, you know, the whole made in China 2025, they've been taking all our, you know, secret, you know, everything trade secrets that we have when they're doing business with companies, we get to use their trade secrets in China, they use it. Some would say China's closed and U.S. has been open. And how is China being closed and they're catching up to U.S.? So it's going to be interesting to see what happens there with that. But let me, let me go to a completely different side now. We, we've covered a lot of things with Bitcoin. You know, maybe one prediction so the audience can see this. It's 61,414 as of right now. Uh, you predicted it's going to get to, what, 100,000 by the end of the year. Some people are saying two or three times higher than you by the end of the year. And you predicted 2026, Bitcoin's going to get to a million 
And the way you described it is because an event that's going to take place in 2024. Do you mind unpacking that and explaining what you mean to say Bitcoin's going to get to a million by 2026? Yeah, so uh, this all goes to the uh, programmatic monetary policy, right? So when you look at Bitcoin from a structural standpoint, 21 million Bitcoin uh, will ever be created. The way that that enters into the circulating supply is back in uh, 2009, 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes was put into the circulating supply via something called a Bitcoin reward that we can talk about later. Uh, and so that happened every 10 minutes, 50 Bitcoin are put into the circulating supply for four years. After four years, there was a supply shock where that 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes went to 25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. So it was written into code. People knew it was happening, but it went got cut in half, right? It's called the Bitcoin halving. When that event occurs and you have a supply shock, if demand continues to grow at the same rate, you naturally will get a repricing of an asset, right? Supply goes down on a daily basis, but demand stays constant or goes up. The price has to move up to accommodate the change in, in the supply schedule. So 50 to 25, 25 for four years, it then got cut in half again to 12 and a half, did that for four years. In May of 2020, it ended up getting cut in half again, uh, as it was scheduled to, uh, to 6.25. And so back in 2019, I said, look, when this halving occurs, there's going to be a repricing of the asset, right? The supply shock is going to drive the price higher. And so 100K was the number. Now, the reason why I say a million dollars by 2026 is that in 2024, there is going to be another supply shock. There will be another cutting in half from 6.25, right? 50% reduction. And so naturally what just happens is when those supply shocks occur, there's a repricing by the market of the asset. Now, what's really fascinating about this, if anyone studies kind of financial markets or, or looks at financial assets, is that in the traditional world, there's uh, commodities like, let's say, gold that use stock-to-flow uh, analysis. Stock-to-flow simply says how, many gold, how much gold is in the world and then how much is coming in on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. And you try to predict both the supply side of the equation and the demand side, and therefore gives you future price predictions. Well, with Bitcoin, you know with 100% certainty the supply side of the schedule. So I know exactly how many Bitcoin there are today, and I can tell you on each day into the future with near 100% accuracy, how many Bitcoin there are going to be. So when you can model out with accuracy the supply side and it's programmatic, you only have to focus on predicting the demand side, right? Because I know with certainty in the, in the programmatic monetary policy supply, so now it just comes down to the demand. And so what you can do is you can basically just extrapolate out. We've got 12 years of data. Well, what's the growth rate of people coming into Bitcoin? And you just continue to extrapolate that out. And what you start to realize is this stock to flow analysis is deadly accurate, right? And so naturally, when you see that, sure, are there days where Bitcoin trades above or below where it's supposed to be? Of course, right? It's a volatile asset uh, in, in some ways. But at the same time, the direction of this thing is very, very accurate because 50% of the supply demand equation is known. And so in, in this crazy, crazy world, Bitcoin is actually a more predictable asset than almost any other asset in the world because it's fully transparent. So, so at the way you described it, you said gold is what? 10 trillion? You said 10 gold trillion. is 10 trillion. Right now, Bitcoin is a trillion. Uh, and uh, the, uh, this is uh, potentially going to end up being twice as big as gold uh, because with gold, you know, you can't really track with this. It's more trackable. It's easier. So $20 trillion market, the $20 trillion, you know, that breaks down to be a million dollars per uh, Bitcoin. Do you think it has a possibility in 2031 to get to 5 million? Do you think it has a possibility by 2040 to get to 10 million? Or do you think it's going to get to a point and kind of level off and stay there for a while? 
So let, let's remove uh, the time scale from the conversation for a second, right? Sure. To, to have an accurate prediction, you need to have an event and you need to have a time, right? But let's take away time for a second and just talk about directional progress. Uh, the reason why some of these industries are so big, right? Around stores of value, art, real estate, right? Et cetera, a lot of commodity markets is because the dollar is devalued, right? If the dollar wasn't devalued, if you could simply get paid in dollars, leave it in your bank account and have the same or more, more purchasing power in the future, you would never get out of the dollar. You would simply save, right? If you go to like, let's say a country like India uh, where the culture was, you basically got gold and then you just pass the gold on from generation to generation to generation, right? Well, in the US and in many developed countries, you can't do that because the currency is being devalued. So you're financially incentivized to either consume goods and services or to invest the capital. Right. And that's part of the velocity of money and all this kind of stuff. So that is a feature of the system, not a bug. When all of a sudden you can simply save in an asset, a currency like Bitcoin, you can get paid in Bitcoin and simply leave it there. People will stop or drastically slow down the rate of investment into other store of value assets. That's why you see gold going down and people simply saving in Bitcoin. Uh, you can look at uh, high end art. You can look at real estate in the future. And so in a crazy way, I personally believe uh, without a time uh, prediction on it, that one day Bitcoin will be a hundred trillion dollar asset, right? It's a hundred X from here. Now, does that I take, mean. yeah, does, does that take uh, one year? Does that take 20 years, 50 years? I don't know, right? I don't want to get into kind of the time component because that's the hardest part of that prediction. But what I do know is that it's not crazy to think that if Bitcoin is a, let's say, 100 or 1,000x improvement on the technology front than gold, that naturally, if you just are a 10x better or bigger market cap than gold, then you would be 100 trillion, right? Because gold's 10 trillion times 10 is just 100 yeah. trillion. Yeah. And so the other part of this that becomes really crazy is we're talking about in 2026 being 2x the current gold market cap. Right. Today, we're sitting at a trillion dollar Bitcoin uh, market cap to get to uh, 20 trillion, 20x, 2x the gold market cap. Well, the conversation that no one's happening is when does the flipping happen between Bitcoin and gold? It's not when Bitcoin gets to 10 trillion, because by the time Bitcoin continues to grow, gold's market cap is going to continue to contract. And if you look at the actual distribution of ownership <laughs> in gold, Everyone always likes to point and say, uh, oh, well, you use gold in your cell phone and you know all this technology and stuff. 7% of gold usage or ownership is due to any sort of technology application. The majority of it is in store of value and jewelry. Jewelry demand for, uh, for gold peaked in 2013 and has been on the steady decline since. The store of value, we just saw central banks in Q4 were net sellers of gold. Gold's market cap is going to continue to contract as the world gets digitized and people literally drop gold and shift capital into a digital store of value. And so my guess is that the kind of flipping of gold and Bitcoin's market cap is not going to happen at the 10 trillion. Maybe it's at nine or eight and a half trillion. And so you start looking at this very crazy world and you start saying, wait a second, these are not static numbers, right? Gold's market cap eventually may be $2 trillion just because people dump gold mm -hmm. and they start moving into other assets. Yeah, so let me ask you. So my other thought goes to a place where a Jamie Dimon, a, 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 a Warren Buffett, a Dalio, take any of these guys that already have a lot of power and influence. They sit there and say, why would I use Bitcoin? Why don't I come up with my own you know, cryptocurrency? 
that uh, a, uh, a chase is going to use. I have power. What about if I bring the smartest guys and they start mining, they start doing the same exact 50, 25, 12 and a half, six and a quarter, three and an eighth, and then boom, you go all the way down. Let's do the same thing. Let's put the same kind of timeline together. If the formula worked and Singapore is using US's uh, approach because it worked, why don't we use what worked with Bitcoin, but let's control it here within B of A. Let's control it here with Chase. Let's control it here with Goldman or Morgan, whoever it is. So if Binance is the direct competitor to Coinbase, who would essentially be the direct competitor to Bitcoin? There, there is no competitor to Bitcoin, right? Because Bitcoin has the only thing that actually matters in this entire game. In order to have a non-state currency, you need full decentralization. If you do not have decentralization, you will fail. And the reason why I say that is because the government has a monopoly on violence. And so if you are Jamie Dimon and you want to create your own currency, which they thought about doing, or you're Facebook and you want to create your own currency, which they did, right? What happens immediately? The government says, Mark Zuckerberg, come in, talk to Congress. You're not allowed to do this. We're going to make all these changes, right? And, and this is a no-go. There is no CEO to call in from Bitcoin. There's no way to shut it down. Decentralization is the security. So the framework I use for this is to ascend to a global reserve currency throughout history, there was violent combat. One country or one you know, uh, kind of geographic location or kingdom went, engaged in combat, prevailed, and then installed their currency as the global reserve currency. But in a digital world, the most powerful military is not the one that is best offensively. It is the one that is best defensively. So in the analog world, whoever's got the more bombs, bullets, guns, soldiers, et cetera, you have the most military might, therefore you get the global reserve currency. The United States is dominating in that fashion over the last uh, couple of centuries or, or uh, decades. In the cyber world, if you can simply just keep everyone out from hacking you, then you're the most powerful. And Bitcoin is the strongest computing network in the world. There is no computer or computer network in the world stronger than Bitcoin. It has the best cyber defense. It is protecting a trillion plus dollar asset and no one can hack it. I don't care what government you are, what individual, what corporation, organization, et cetera. You cannot hack Bitcoin because it is so decentralized and has so much computing power running it. So when you get to that world, what ends up happening is it doesn't matter what any government says. It doesn't matter what any politician says. They can try to regulate individuals or corporations but they cannot shut down the network. And that open decentralized network, naturally value will flow there. And so if Jamie Dimon wants to start his own coin, that's a great idea for him to try, but he'll never be successful in getting global adoption because he's always gonna have to answer to a government that says, Jamie, right? You are not allowed to do this because now you are a direct competition to our nation state currency. Well, let me ask so you a question. Doesn't, doesn't that kind of make you the Buffett of the world that's too cocky to think that somebody else can't come and take you guys. Like, you know what I'm saying? Does that kind of make you make, make you be like America where you become, you know, complacent, too confident to think that somebody else can't come and take you out. That's my only thing where I think it's worked so effectively that someone's going to say, we're going to do it ourselves. And we have a name already where there's so, no competition. So you have to remember that uh, there is a hyper vigilance uh, uh, in the Bitcoin community. Right. And what I mean by that is, Every single day, millions of people around the world are running the numbers. They're constantly looking at, is the code executing correctly? Is there anyone who's trying to do anything nefarious or malicious? Has anybody gotten too much uh, computing power or hash rate on the network? Like, like this hyper vigilance around this transparent asset, we're talking about an asset 
that had no venture funding or, or any sort of you know equity capital contributed. It had no team, no CEO, no founder, no marketing team, no partnerships team, no anything. And it got all of these people around the world to build it, run it, protect it, et cetera. And it's grown into a trillion dollar asset. And it's all because incentives run the world. And a decentralized open system is superior to every other system in the world. So here's, what I, here's my greatest fear as Jamie Dimon and other people start going into this world, right? I've called it the, uh, the corporate central uh, bank playbook. And I've been writing about this for a while. Uh, but I think it's a world where we're going to be very, very scared if we enter this. JP Morgan said that they were going to create JPM coin a while ago. And JPM coin was going to be backed one-to-one to the US dollar. So they put a bunch of dollars in a bank account, right? And they would issue a digital dollar or JPM coin. And then you would go around, you could use this thing. Uh, and they would start with their corporate customers, right? Their partners. Then eventually they would push it out to retail. They get merchants using it, et cetera. But then just like the US dollar was depegged from gold, Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan in the future could just say, you know what? We're not going to unpeg it from the dollar. And now all of a sudden, JP Morgan is in charge and controls a currency that has you know, global or national adoption, but they are the central bank. They can print as much as they want, contract the supply as they want, et cetera. And so I've been a very big proponent that they're, they're uh, I'm usually not a very big uh, proponent of regulation, but there needs to be a conversation immediately that if a financial institution goes ahead and says, we are going to create a digital currency and it is backed by a basket of currencies, commodities, whatever, that is okay. But you are not allowed to change it in the future. So if you tell people it's backed one-to-one to the dollar, and then you want to unpeg it in the future, now what we're doing is we're really threatening the national currencies because we're going to give corporations the ability to be central banks, right? That's a world I don't think we want to go yeah. into. And so when you compare, would you rather a decentralized, transparent monetary uh, system, yeah. or would you rather JP Morgan control the currency? Yeah, because then it goes back to the old school of doing business where one person is so powerful that you're scared of them because they can make any decision. That, that makes a lot of sense. So by the way, I'm a math guy. You sound like a math guy, right? You know, when you were back in school and you had this one tough formula, teacher would write it on the board. You're like, holy, how? And then you would sit there, your brain is just going crazy because you're trying to really figure this thing out. Who the hell is this person that figured out the math for Bitcoin, the 50, 25, 12 and a half, the timing every four years, mining? How does one even... I mean, you know, I've interviewed Craig Wright before. Oh, I am Satoshi. And, you know, when I did that, I, you have no idea how many hate letters, me an email, people, you can't, I cannot believe you even had the audacity to have him on. Everyone knows he's not Satoshi, all this other person. What do you think about when you think about the person? Forget about asking, who do you think it is? I'm not asking, who do you think it is? What do you think about what it takes for a person to create something like this from scratch where a trillion dollar asset today what do you think about the brain it takes to create something like this? Yeah, um, there's, there's two key components here, in my opinion. One is uh, there's a beauty in this like immaculate conception story, right? Nobody knows who the founder is, the pseudonymity, uh, the way it was introduced, all that stuff is actually a key feature of Bitcoin. I don't want to know who it is. And I don't think that it would be necessarily good for Bitcoin if people knew. I don't think it would be fatal either, but I think that having this like nameless or, or, or faceless founder is actually a really strong thing because there's nobody to point at or to talk to or call in front of Congress, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's kind of the first piece is the Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, almost like legend is uh, a key component and very important. The second thing is people don't understand that this is actually not the first iteration of a attempt at a global digital currency, right? There was Bitgold and a couple of other attempts previously, and they didn't get it right. 
there was either problems with this double spend problem or other types of issues that popped up. And so whoever the individual or group of people who came up with Bitcoin, they actually had some kind of shoulders to stand on, right? There was previous attempts and, and people were able to kind of see, okay, somebody tried this type of iteration, it didn't work. Well, we can figure out a solution to that. And so obviously whoever did this, whether it's an individual or a group, incredibly intelligent. I mean, the design of Bitcoin is beautiful, both from uh, kind of the monetary policy we've been talking about, uh, the uh, difficulty uh, adjustments that occur in the mining system, et cetera. But I also think that uh, in some crazy, crazy world, it takes humility. It takes a humbleness, whoever the individual is or the group, to have created something and to not say anything, to not go move the, you know, whatever is 800,000, a million Bitcoin or whatever that's in the Satoshi wallets. That's a lot of money. And so when you start to look at this system, this is a special person or group to not only have been smart enough to design it, to not only have been smart enough to introduce it into the system, to also disappear, right? And to kind of walk away, but then also not to financially benefit from it. It's pretty incredible when you start to kind of unpack a lot of this. And I think that uh, over the years, Satoshi Nakamoto will probably end up being seen as one of the most important people or groups in the world. And the beauty is we just don't know who it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting when you think about that, because even, you know, he may essentially be the richest man in the world today. If you think about it, if you, if you just do the math, he's probably the richest man in the world today. What if he's dead? What if she's dead? What if he's not around? What if no one's ever going to tap into that key? Where is that money going to sit? How is that going to be controlled? Are they going to try to figure out a way to make it loose so other people can touch, touch it? I don't know. It's very interesting when you think about that. Couple, couple other conversations, uh, three topics and we're done here. What do you think about collectibles? What do you think about cards? You know, cards you're seeing a million dollars, half a million dollars, six, five million dollars. What do you think about the growth of cards where a lot of the younger generation that's also turned on by crypto, by NFT is also starting to be turned on by collectible cards? Look, uh, a lot of this is macro related, I think, just in the sense of there's so much quantitative easing, there's so much devaluation of currencies. Uh, people are looking around the room and they're saying, what's going on? I got to get out of the dollar. And so they want to go buy stuff. Now, I don't know what percentage of people are buying cards or Bitcoin or name your asset because uh, of that, but there's definitely some element of uh, they're running from something. The second thing is they all got a ton of money, savings rates up, personal incomes up, right? There's just money sloshing around a system. And so when you got extra cash, uh, there's people who just want to go invest and buy things and make more money and kind of do all of that. Uh, the third thing is uh, for a long period of time last year, there was no sports, there's no entertainment. And so naturally, you know, if you were betting on games or doing whatever, well, what's the next best thing? I'm going to go bet in the stock market. It's, you know, basically the same thing. I'm just trying to make money that there's an entertainment factor. Uh, and then the last thing I think is uh, kind of this gamification or, or an access play, right? If all of a sudden now on my computer screen, I can do this easily uh, and I can get a dopamine hit from it. What's the difference between me trying to buy a card on eBay, turn around and flip it a week later versus me scrolling mindlessly on Instagram or Twitter? It's all dopamine, yeah, right? And, and so I think that just naturally, like you're seeing this, again, generational shift, these digital natives that are kind of starting to do this. Uh, I think that whether we're talking about NFTs, uh, you're talking about NBA Top Shot, you're talking about the actual physical cards, uh, I think that you're going to get these boom and bust cycles, right? So like, if you zoom out, you say, hey, 25 years from now, is this asset class going to be bigger or smaller than it is today? Definitely bigger in my mind. If you say to me, okay, now draw out the boom and bust cycles between now and then, I got no clue. Right. Like, like it's just naturally you're going to get some frothy times. You're going to get some drawdowns. And so I think people just got to understand, are you actually speculating and trying to like day trade, whether it's cards, collectibles, NFTs, whatever, or are you a long-term holder of this and you're going to kind of buy it and never sell it?
And if you just know who you are, just understand the risk you're taking, the pros and cons of that strategy and knock yourself out. We're on the same page there. Two last topics. One, let's talk about Trump. And let me explain to where I'm going with Trump. I'm not asking you about your political beliefs or anything like that. Say you are on uh, uh, Trump's advisory board, okay, hypothetically. Not saying you are, I don't know where you lean politically, but let's just say you're sitting on Trump's advisory board. He's been silenced now for what, six months. Twitter suspended him and then everybody else followed suit. No one's opened it up. He did an interview with his daughter-in-law, uh, daughter Laura Trump, was put on Facebook, taken out within 24 hours. So it's not just him trying to speak. Him speaking on other platforms is also being taken down, right? Last uh, four weeks, people have been calling me, telling me, Pat, check out BitCloud, 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 Shamat's behind it. This Andrew, and you know, all these people are behind this. They took the top 15,000 accounts on Twitter and they put it on there and they're waiting in 20% when they come and they collect and all this other stuff. And then, so I posed a question on uh, t- uh, Twitter and I said, hey, BitCloud, uh, 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 if uh, Twitter and Bitcoin had a baby, it would be BitCloud. Thoughts? What are you doing with this scam? Are you kidding me? You have bought into this. There's no way in the world you individually can invest into somebody. But the idea is very interesting. Then I got about 100 people that comment and said, it's about Twitch, not Twitch, but Twitch, T-W-E-T-C-H dot app, I believe, Twitch, right? I'm going to put the link below if people want to find out more about either one of them. So BitCloud, Bit and so why, why would you want to get on BitCloud? Because it's decentralized. So if anybody wants to tweet, you cannot get suspended. You cannot do this. You cannot do that. Do you think the future of social media to give back the freedom of speech where somebody cannot ban you will also be linked to a blockchain, cryptocurrency, decentralized type of a platform where the individual can have the freedom to say whatever they want to say? Do you see social media going in that direction? One of my core uh, investment thesis is that decentralized products are going to be much larger than centralized products, right? So a decentralized Twitter, if done correctly, will be much bigger than Twitter. Uh, decentralized exchanges on the stock market or cryptocurrency markets will be much bigger than centralized ones. Um, and then the second thing is that uh, as part of that theme, uh, the users of these platforms will have to have a financial stake regardless of what the actual mechanism is in order for them to be successful in the future. So kind of decentralization is key and then having uh, less of a middleman or kind of a rent seeker uh, and more of a flow through of the financials to the participants in in an ecosystem uh, or community. So with that as the backdrop, uh, I don't know if BitCloud is the answer or some variation that somebody else comes up with, but I absolutely believe that there is going to be somebody who cracks this idea of uh, decentralization, both from a kind of a security, freedom of speech, all that stuff, and also a financial incentive. How do you bootstrap a network? How do you actually create an economy? Um, you know, what's the difference, let's say, between BitCloud and uh, these decentralized kind of creator coins um, versus maybe Clubhouse and the ability to pay the creators directly in Clubhouse. Sure, there's centralization, decentralization, one's digital currencies, one's kind of more traditional fiat currencies, whatever. But from a structural standpoint, the idea still is like the audience and the participants have an exchange of value. One is I'm providing you a a service, right? Or, Or kind of goods, you're providing me currency. And so I think that what we're starting to see is people are playing around with it. They're experimenting, they're trying to innovate. I don't yet know what the solution is. And I think that's part of the fun of all of this is trying to figure out who cracks it. But I do think that the legacy models that we've seen will be archaic compared to where we end up, you know, in the coming years. Yeah, I think so as well. I think that's the direction Now, you worked on voter registration with Facebook. Do you also see this going in the door? Because, you know, voting was a big uh, problematic issue this last time where people, some people didn't trust us. Some people were like, well, it's this. Even in 2016, there was voter fraud, 2020 voter fraud. Every election we have, one side that says there was voter fraud to the other side, right? Do you think 
in order to have 100% trust in how votes are also taking place, it would also be an open, decentralized, maybe not the fact that's shown which side you voted on because that's private for the individual. Do you think we can also use the same technology to go in the direction to make voting a little bit more accurate where people on both sides trusted more? Yeah, so I, I come from a, a position of um, every extreme in politics is idiotic, right? Like I'm much more of somebody who's just like, hey, there's like common sense and, and there's probably truth in between all of these things. Uh, but but the one thing that uh, when it comes to the voting uh, issues that uh, just blows my mind is I said to people, listen, for decades now, we have had people with sometimes pencils, right? Literally filling out pieces of paper and we've got millions and millions, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people all voting. Uh, are you telling me that you think there's been 100% accuracy? And I don't care what side benefited, didn't benefit, whatever. Of course not, right? And sometimes there's been really egregious stuff and sometimes there's literally just been mistakes, right? You can't tell uh, or the chat or whatever all this crazy stuff is. That's a narrative driven system. The narrative has been, it's a free, fair, accurate election, right? The narrative has been that 100% uh, of the vote uh, happens and, and there's no issues, there's no anything. As we shift from that narrative based world, to a world where it comes more to uh, the validity and the verifiability and, and the prove it to me type narrative, especially from the younger people, we naturally are going to have to use technology to service that need or that desire. What the system is, I don't know yet. How you do it in terms of, like you said, uh, hey, you voted, but I don't want to see what actually you voted, but I want to make sure that it counted in the right bucket. Like, There's people way smarter than me that will figure all of that out. But I actually think what becomes so crazy and interesting about this whether it's in financial markets or in what is essentially a political market, is it creates a more fair and actual accurate market, right? So if all of a sudden we could guarantee that everyone's vote actually counted the way they wanted to, I think most people would agree like that's a good thing. And I'm not saying that that didn't happen or yeah. it did happen or whatever, but yeah. it's just like, I think technology is now getting to the point where people are going to start demanding hey, I don't want to live in a narrative-driven world. I want to live in a world where I can verify what's being told to me, whether it's from the media, whether it's from CEOs of corporations, mm -hmm. whether it's from governments, or it's from these decentralized platforms. I believe nobody is the default until you prove it to me. And I think that you know polit politics is no, uh, no different than any other market. Anthony, we all have strengths. What do you think yours is? I'm about to give you what I think, what, what I foresee <laughs> one of your biggest strengths is, but I'm curious to know what you think and what you've been told. I, I think that... Uh, at a very high level, uh, I literally just enjoy being myself. And so uh, I'm just authentic. Like what you see is what you get. If you meet me on the street, if you go to dinner with me, or we sit here and talk, like this is who I am. This is stuff I talk about. Uh, I don't really believe that you can live in today's society with like a, a public persona uh, totally. or anything like that. It's just people really, really value the authenticity and it makes it much easier right? It's just, just be yourself. And so I think that I, I'm willing to do that. I do that. And uh, that tends to be a, a really big strength, especially in a digital age. You're an absolute stud of a guy that's going places. We're going to have to see you and hear you for decades and decades and decades to come. Uh, the way it's going, you're pretty much going to be in the billionaire category and you know it, that smile tells the whole story behind that. But outside of that, I think one of your strengths is you're an incredible teacher. You're very good at explaining topics in a way where I learned today, just listening to you, the way you break things down. It's a very unique gift of yours that you have that I hope the audience enjoyed this interview as much as I enjoyed it. Folks, if you want to hear more from Anthony, he's got a podcast uh, uh, called The Pomp Podcast. We're going to put the link below. We'll also put his Twitter account if you want to go message him on what you took away from today's interview. Anthony, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment.
Listen, thank you so much for having me and I appreciate the kind words, but I've learned a ton from you as well. So uh, please keep it up because uh, the rest of us are enjoying all these interviews you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. I rarely say this. This is probably the best interview I've ever done on the topic of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. Uh, Anthony is an incredible teacher. You saw me say it right in front of him. Curious to know what you took away from it. Comment below. Also, if you enjoyed this, I have two interviews for you. We mentioned Ray Dalio. If you've never watched an interview with Ray Dalio, click over here. And if you've not watched the video I did with Metacoven, it's another one. Both of these interviews, Metacoven is a gentleman that's a crypto billionaire who bought Beeple's every day for $69.3 million. If you've not watched that, click over here. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.